Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. A slowdown in hiring and a spike in unemployment. What the latest job numbers tell us about the economy as President Biden continues to tout it. Record-breaking numbers of families are reportedly crossing the border illegally. We bring you the exact numbers and how it compares to single adults. Two more members of the Proud Boys sentenced over the Capitol breach. One is facing 18 years, tying with the longest sentence handed out so far over January 6th. A judge tosses an attempt to get Trump kicked out of the election, saying the attorney wasn't allowed to make the challenge. But she said there is another way. The legal fees for Trump's co-defendants are adding up, and they get expensive fast. Should Trump or the Republican Party step up? And should there be an age limit or mental health evaluations for elected officials? Senate leader Mitch McConnell's latest freeze revives the issue. The labor market is cooling amid rising interest rates. That could be good news for the Federal Reserve, but could also complicate President Biden's economic messaging in his 2024 campaign. Joining us live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What's in the latest job numbers released today and what did the president say? Good evening to you, Tiff. So the August jobs report released today shows that the overheated U.S. labor market is finally cooling off amid rising interest rates. So according to the Labor Department, the U.S. economy added 187,000 jobs in August, which shows that hiring is slowing down but continues to be robust. But the unemployment rate rose to unexpectedly to 3.8 percent from 3.5 percent in July, and that uptake makes it the highest unemployment rate since February 2022, and that's also the highest jump since the early days of the pandemic. And that increase comes mainly from people just looking for new jobs and coming back to the workforce. And, and some layoffs are also, of course, part of it. And President Biden today touted the latest numbers in the speech in the Rose Garden and also argued that these new jobs added are because of his economic policy. Watch. America is now one of the strongest job creating periods in our history, in the history of our country. And it wasn't that long ago that America was losing jobs. We've recovered all the jobs lost during the pandemic. We've added a million more new jobs. So the Biden administration has been touting what it calls Bidenomics for the past few months, especially as the economy continues to be the top concern for voters in 2024. But it's unclear how much the public will buy that as a new study finds that 61 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And a new study, a new poll from the Associated Press in August, also shows that only 36 percent of U.S. adults approve of Biden's handling of the economy. But an economist from Bankrate told me today that the numbers are indeed in Biden's favor, although the future remains unclear. Watch. Uh, the president has statistics in his favor. Uh, the reality is the U.S. economy is performing well. But, uh, you know, as they say in Hollywood, you're only as good as your last movie. You're only as good as your most recent uh, set of economic statistics. And the outlook certainly does remain uncertain, given the restrictive stance of monetary policy and the weakness of global economies. 
And next Monday, President Biden is traveling to Philadelphia to celebrate Labor Day, but also to continue to tout the economy. And that's as next week will also be a big foreign policy week, as Biden's leaving for India on Thursday for the G20 summit, and then later for Vietnam to deepen ties with that country amid, of course, growing concerns over China. And Tiff. Definitely a lot to watch out for next week. Iris, thanks for that update. New reports say more families of illegal immigrants are coming to the U.S. than ever before. Meanwhile, federal and state governments continue to use American troops to assist with the influx of people. NTD's Arian Pastar has an immigration update. New reports show more immigrant families than ever have been arrested at the southern border in August. The Washington Post received preliminary data showing that 91,000 arrested immigrants crossed as part of a family group. That breaks the previous one-month record from May 2019, which was at around 85,000 individuals. The data also shows that overall apprehensions are on the rise again. In June, around 100,000 have been arrested at the southern border. In July, the number was at over 130,000, and now in August, it climbed to 177,000. It was clear immediately after Title 42 ended that the administration was not following through on all its tough talk. They were just letting everybody in just like before. Todd Bensman is a senior national security fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. He says the number dipped for a while after Title 42 expired in May because the Biden administration had said it would enforce stricter rules from now on. The immigrants realized that if they crossed illegally that they were still being let in. Meanwhile, the Pentagon will keep 400 troops at the southern border until the end of September. The deployment was initially supposed to end on Thursday. And Massachusetts Democratic governor announced on Thursday that the state is deploying the National Guard to help with the influx of people. Three weeks ago, the governor said this. Today, I am declaring a state of emergency in Massachusetts. The 200 guardsmen will now be placed at hotels, which are currently serving as shelters for immigrants. Political candidates right now are campaigning for the primaries. How do you think should the next president tackle the immigration crisis? Well, if, if, they, if the next president wants to end this and make sure that families end up in Mexico is as far as they're ever going to get. Uh, the day that the immigrants realize that Mexico is as far as they're going to get, they'll stay home, just like they did during the Trump administration. Amid the rising number of people arriving, Homeland Security told the Washington Post that the administration is working to expand options to come legally while creating stricter penalties for those who come illegally. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Two more members of the Proud Boys were sentenced today over the Capitol breach. Ethan Nordeen, one of the group's leaders, was sentenced to 18 years in prison. That's tied with the longest January 6th sentence handed out so far. And Dominic Pozzola got 10 years. Nordin is the Seattle area chapter president of the group. He had been convicted of seditious conspiracy and other crimes. The prosecutor said Nordin was the undisputed leader on the ground on January 6th and asked for a 27-year prison term. Pozzola is a lower-level member of the Proud Boys. 
Prosecutors say he smashed the windows of the Capitol and let people into the building. The New York native was convicted of multiple charges, including assaulting or resisting a police officer, robbery of a police shield, destruction of government property, and obstructing an official proceeding. He's the only one of the five charged with seditious conspiracy to be acquitted of it. Peter Navarro, a former top advisor for Trump, is heading to trial next Tuesday on charges of criminal contempt of Congress. This comes after a federal judge turned down his executive privilege claim. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the details. A trial date awaiting ahead. Jury selection for ex-White House advisor Peter Navarro begins next Tuesday following a court decision earlier this week. Navarro was held in contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with a probe into the January 6th protest. He said that former President Trump invoked executive privilege, which could have justified him not appearing before the House January 6th committee and not handing over documents. But a federal judge ruled against him, saying that there's no evidence to back up his claim. Speaking to the press on Wednesday, Navarro said, In other words, for over 50 years, it's been the case where uh, people like me, senior advisors to the president, alter egos of the president, um, cannot be compelled to testify. That's absolute. The executive privilege is a presidential power aiming to prevent Congress and the Supreme Court from accessing confidential executive branch information. That includes communications between the president and his top assistants. Former President Trump has previously invoked executive privilege to withhold documents from the House J6 committee. When asked about his concerns regarding the partisan jury pool in D.C., Navarro responded, It was crystal clear. The judge went over all of that, I think, in a very thoughtful way uh, today within the context of the, all of the case law. As of now, former President Trump himself has yet to make clear his executive privilege claim. Navarro said that the case is an expensive fight and he might eventually take it to the Supreme Court. Sam Wong, NTD News. A Florida federal judge on Thursday quickly dismissing a challenge to Trump's run for president. She says the challenger, a local attorney, doesn't have standing. NTD's Arlene Richards explains the case, as well as a growing trend to eliminate Trump from the race. It's going to take more than a citizen's complaint to kick former President Trump out of the presidential race. On Thursday, federal judge Robin Rosenberg ruled that Florida attorney Lawrence Kaplan couldn't bring a lawsuit challenging a candidate's eligibility to run for office. Kaplan and two others claimed they were injured because Trump conspired to deprive them of their civil rights. A claim similar to a charge in the D.C. federal indictment that accuses Trump of attempting to overturn the 2020 election. The judge said the plaintiffs lacked standing. In other words, they couldn't bring the case because they didn't have any personal stake in it, or they couldn't show that they would be personally harmed if Trump gets on the ballot. She explained that if she allowed this case to go forward, then any citizen could claim an injury simply because they disagreed with the candidate's political views. However, a state official is allowed to file this claim, she said, but the claim would have to be filed in a D.C. federal court. Rosenberg's decision comes after other states and officials are closely reviewing Trump's eligibility. Advocacy group Free Speech for People sent letters to election officials in Florida, Ohio, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, and New Mexico on Wednesday, asking them to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The amendment automatically excludes individuals who attempt an insurrection against the U.S. government. 
The New Hampshire Attorney General's office said this week it's carefully reviewing the legal issues presented by the amendment. But New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu said on the New Hampshire Today podcast that Trump is going to be eligible for the ballot in New Hampshire. I don't think anything's going to change between now and the primary. Uh, it shouldn't change. If he does, goes through the process like everyone else, he should be on that ballot absolutely unquestionably. Now, where that goes from the constitutional law stuff, uh, again, I guess maybe the courts or something will figure all that out. But here in New Hampshire, the former president will I, – I, I can't see any scenario where he doesn't end up on the ballot. Special counsel Jack Smith didn't charge Trump with insurrection in the recent election indictment. But the states don't have to show that Trump actually stormed the Capitol. It's enough for them to show that he helped others to do it. More co-defendants in the Georgia case against Trump have pleaded not guilty. They include former New York City mayor and Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani and Kenneth Cheesebro, the alleged architect of the plan to submit alternative electors in the 2020 presidential election. Both Giuliani and Cheesebro are waiving their right to an arraignment hearing, according to court filings today. Cheesebro is also asking the judge to make prosecutors turn over discovery evidence quickly. So far, 10 of the 19 defendants have now pleaded not guilty, including former President Trump. The remaining nine have until next Wednesday to enter a plea, or they will be arraigned in person at a court hearing in Fulton County. Trump has filed to sever his case from the others, since some are seeking a speedy trial. Are Trump's allies being punished by the legal process itself? The legal fees are mounting. For a closer look at how expensive it can get, we spoke with Cash Patel, a former federal prosecutor under Trump. Cash Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. It seems Trump's co-defendants are struggling with mounting legal fees, and some conservatives who are critical of the indictments are calling this, quote, political persecution. Can you explain the concept of the process is the punishment? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, I know it firsthand. I was the first individual subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. I received subpoenas by the DOJ regarding the classified documents case, which is now in special counsel Jack Smith's hand. And as a former federal prosecutor and public defender, I know that everyone that receives these is entitled to counsel, but they're not entitled to the money that uh, would buy you the necessary counsel that you need. And that's a tragic reality in America's justice system. And by sending out, it's not like they subpoenaed like one or two or three people. They've subpoenaed hundreds of people between Congress and the justice system. And then the reality is many of those people have nothing, like me, had nothing to say that would help the Justice Department's case or Congress's case when the Jan 6 committee was doing their business. So I do think they're politicizing and weaponizing it to basically kneecap people in Donald Trump's community. And Cash, give us a sense of this, like these legal fees. How much can a court case like this cost? Yeah, look, you're not talking like 10, 15, 20 grand. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars if you're just the witness or the you know, recipient of a subpoena that's not a target subpoena, as we say, meaning you're not the target as a defendant in a criminal case. Uh, should you be put in that category, then it jumps up to easy, high six-figure, seven-figure sums of money. These are complex, extensive matters, very high profile, which doesn't mean the case should be treated any differently, but the reality is it just is. 
the DOJ, where I used to work, will treat this case involving President Trump differently. I mean, they've been doing it on a two-tier system of justice, but they will ratchet that up, in my opinion, because they want to put so much enforcement and resources behind it, which causes those involved in it um, price tag to go up. And given these costs, what happens if someone can't pay their legal fees? Yeah, that's the worst of the worst scenarios. I mean, look, in the American jurisprudence system, we always used to say, you know, there's no such thing as debtor's prison. But unfortunately, this is where you leave some of these people because the Constitution affords these individuals lawyers. But if you just have a subpoena, you can't go get a public defender. Um, if you just have a witness letter or a target letter, you can't just go get a court-appointed lawyer. That only comes in and attaches once you've been indicted criminally. So even those individuals who don't have experience with the legal system know that they need some kind of counsel because most of these people have never even heard of this type of process, let alone been put through it. And so it, you know, the bills just the, the first phone call it's probably ten grand. The retainer is another fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, and then it's an hourly basis after that. And as any human being would want, you would want to protect yourself from any rogue prosecutions and make sure you don't jeopardize your own um, liability in any of these cases. And that takes time and money. And CNN had a report out, including some others, who are saying that Trump should be paying for these legal fees of his co-defendants. What do you make of that? Well, look, what President Trump can um, decide how he wants to expend his money however he wishes. But the reality remains that if you rewind the tape to Russiagate, which I was a ch uh, chief investigator on, and dozens of Democrats were rightfully targeted by our committee and subpoenaed and put through depositions and ultimately subpoenaed by DOJ and the like, all of those individuals, I'm talking about the Fusion GPSs, the Sussmans, the Elisis and everybody else, they weren't footing their own legal bill. The Democratic National Party and others came in to pay the millions and millions and millions of dollars in legal fees for all of these individuals, which continues through this day. So I don't see how, you know, CNN's, of course, their perspective is how do we just punish Trump, in my opinion, for doing whatever. Uh, I think the Republican National Party, writ large, should be paying or help paying for a lot of these legal expenses. It can't fall to an individual in President Trump, even though he's very generous and very supportive of all of those people who are attacked around him and subpoenaed around him. There are many other entities that if we were Democrats, we wouldn't even be having this discussion because the bills would have already been paid. And I think it falls more to them than it does President Trump. Kash Patel, thank you so much for your insights. Hey, thanks. Have a great evening. How old is too old? Senate leader Mitch McConnell's latest freeze is reviving longstanding discussions about whether age limits and mental health evaluations are needed for elected officials. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more. Senator Mitch McConnell at 81 years old is the longest serving party leader, which is a weighty position, especially right now in the Democrat controlled Senate, where he oftentimes must spearhead efforts to work with Democrats in areas of bipartisan cooperation. Now there are lingering questions about whether or not McConnell can continue to fulfill this role after his latest incident, where he froze mid sentence for about 17 seconds earlier this week. The second such time an incident like this has happened in the past five weeks. Now, even though the U.S. Capitol physician says that he's cleared to return to this leadership position, claiming that this was just a matter of lightheadedness or dehydration, some aren't convinced, saying that there could be other medical conditions involved. Is this, is this some sort of 
um, Parkinsonian-like sort of thing. When someone's medications are wearing off, sometimes they can freeze like this. Some of these things more likely than others, but as I say, the list is long. Right now, the average age of U.S. Senators is 64 years old, and Nikki Haley, a Republican who's running for president, has called this latest incident an example of how the Senate is actually a privileged nursing home, as she calls it. She also recently proposed an age limit of 75 for every politician to undergo a mental competency test. And McConnell's not the only concern here. There are polls that show that voters are concerned about President Biden's age. And there's another senator, Dianne Feinstein, who's the oldest senator here in the U.S. Congress, whose health issues have actually interfered with her work here in Congress, leading some lawmakers, even those in her own party, Democrats, calling for her to step down. We have not yet seen any serious effort put forth by either chamber that would either require mental competency tests or disqualify elderly politicians. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Coming up, curious about UFOs? The Pentagon says it's now sharing actual videos with the public. Three global organizations have joined forces to promote what they call sexual rights for children. We speak with the Epic Times reporter who broke the story. And Ohio police released body cam footage of an incident last week that left a pregnant woman dead. What led up to the fatal encounter? More shortly on NTD News. Welcome back. In an unprecedented move, the Pentagon is opening up about UFOs. They've rolled out a website designed to keep the public informed. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. A U.S. Navy jet crew can be heard celebrating as they finally lock onto an unidentified flying object. And their next question? <laughs> On Thursday, the Pentagon released several videos like these involving UFOs, or what they now call UAPs, or Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Now these videos and more are accessible to the public on the Pentagon's new website at aaro.mil. There you can find all publicly available information related to the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or ARO. Pentagon spokesperson General Pat Ryder explained the website will include not only declassified videos, but also... As well as links to official reports, transcripts, press releases, and other resources that the public may find useful. According to a report on the website and as seen in the videos, most of the unidentified objects are round and many can reach speeds of around Mach 2. That's about 1,500 miles per hour. The catch is that they reach those speeds without any thermal exhaust, a technology unknown to humankind. Ryder also mentioned the Defense Department is committed to transparency with the American people on RO's work with UAPs. But some people wouldn't agree. A former Navy pilot, Ryan Graves, testified about this before Congress in July. Parts of our government are aware of more about UAP than they let on, but excessive classification practices keep crucial information hidden. Since 2021, all UAP videos are classified as secret or above. This level of secrecy not only impedes our understanding, but fuels speculation and mistrust. And if you've seen something unexplained in the sky, the new website will soon have a section where you'll be able to report it directly. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
Ruby Frankie, host of a YouTube channel on parenting, has been arrested on child abuse charges. She's a mother of six in Utah, known for her family-focused YouTube channel, Eight Passengers. According to the Washington County Sheriff's Department, Frankie was arrested and booked into jail on two second-degree felony aggravated child abuse charges earlier this week. Authorities said they received a call claiming that Frankie's 12-year-old son was malnourished and had open wounds. The child was reportedly asking for food and water. Authorities later found another child, who was reportedly Frankie's 10-year-old daughter, in a similar condition. Both children were taken to the hospital. Frankie's YouTube channel had nearly 2.3 million subscribers before it was ultimately shut down earlier this year. She remains in custody along with her business partner. Also on the topic of children, three global organizations are implementing a plan to teach kindergartners about sexuality and, quote, empower children to say yes to sexual encounters. This according to a new report in the Epic Times. We spoke with its author, Darlene Sanchez, to learn more. Darlene Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And Darlene, you just came out with an in-depth report titled Global Network Promotes Sexual Rights for Children. Tell us about what you found here. How young are we talking? Well, some of this sexual ed starts in kindergarten, believe it or not, and, you know, goes through high school. Um, most parents out there, I think, would be familiar with sex ed, maybe starting in middle school and, you know, certainly, you know, something in high school. But um, yeah, this is, is starting at kindergarten level. And uh, parents need to be aware they might start seeing this. And from what you found, who or what are the groups pushing this? What's behind this? Well, there are actually, um, you know, a consortium of global networks, uh, global entities and um, agencies like the United Nations, um, the World Health Organization, uh, and then the International Planned Parenthood. Those three groups seem to be, you know, laser focused on sex ed and believe it or not, sexual rights for children. And from what you found in your research, what is the why behind this? Why are they pushing this? Well, what happened is, um, back when uh, President Obama was in office, he signed on to this UN, um, UN plan, basically, for the world. Uh, it's a globalist plan, and by 2030, they want to basically change the world and have, you know, everybody have, you know, equal rights, everybody, you know, have, um, you know, a, a nice standard of living, that sort of thing. So it is like a utopian kind of thing, you know, or trying to push for something better than what they have now for everybody globally. And so it started coming into that. And part of that is education. So within the education component, they started in with the sex ed and the consent being part of sex ed. And it seems, you know, some of these, the International Planned Parenthood or IPPF has a kit instructing kids under the age of 10. It's quite young here, but what are critics and proponents telling you about this plan? Well, okay, so the proponents of it are saying, you know, children are just like 
anybody else, they need rights too. They have the right, uh, sexual rights. Um, they have the right to enjoy pleasure. They have the right to even talked about have sexual fantasies. Um, you know, they're pushing that side of it. And they're saying also that children, you know, should be listened to when it comes down to consent and, you know, their ability to say yes to sex, believe it or not. So what they're saying is, based on a, a child's maturity, this child might be able to fully comprehend, understand, and give permission to have sex, um, you know, maybe 10, 11 years old, depending on their maturity level. So, of course, the critics of this are just, you know, they're outraged, of course. Um, they're like, this is basically, you know, a way to, you know, uh, advanced pedophilia. You know, one of the experts I talked to said, you know, there are there are adults out there, they're working on the international level to lower the age of consent for children to have sex. And on that note, in the states by law, the age of consent is about 16 to 18 years. Under that, you need parental guidance. So if this were to be set in place, do parents have the option to opt out? Yes, I would think so. Right now, um, throughout the United States, most places, I should say most states, um, you do have the right to opt out, um, especially, I would think, in red states. I know in Texas, um, uh, you know, you can for sure, because there was a group of parents that fought back against this comprehensive sex ed. Um, in one of the districts there in South Texas and successfully, you know, repelled that uh, or repulsed that effort to get that sex ed in that district. So, yes, it's possible. But I guess what parents need to be aware of is this is coming. This is not your, your everyday sex ed. And Darlene, give us a sense of how easy or hard it was even for you to find out what was happening here. I, you know, this is really like a web. Um, it, it, there was so many documents. Um, it's all layered. There's layers. And if you look at the article, you know, that's online, um, I have links to several of these articles and you can see how layered it is. So you really have to get in there to understand what they're saying. So given how much time it took you, parents might not even know about this. Is that fair to say? I think that's that's fair to say. Absolutely. I think it, I mean, I don't think many parents out there realize what's going on here. I think parents are going to have to really keep focused on this and watch what their kids are, you know, if they sign off on sex ed, they need to make sure that it doesn't include some of this, um, you know, consent and rights to pleasure. Um, I would be very cautious. Darlene Sanchez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And if you'd like to know more, you can head over to the Epic Times to read Darlene's story titled Global Network Promotes Sexual Rights for Children. Police in Ohio have released body cam video of an incident last week that left a pregnant woman dead. You're about to see video that takes place after a grocery store employee called police. That employee reported a woman had stolen several bottles of alcohol and was still in the parking lot. 
Two responding officers approached 21-year-old Takaya Young's vehicle. One spoke to her through the driver's side window, while another stood in front. The officer in front fired through the windshield after Young ignored orders to get out of the vehicle. You can also see she is starting to move the vehicle forward and turning the wheel when the officer fires. This video may be disturbing to some viewers. Out of the car. Young's family says the video is proof Young's death was avoidable and the police abused their power. Blandon Township Police say the opposite. Their position is the video proves Young was in the process of attempting vehicular assault on an officer when she was shot. And after the break, student loan interest is back. The big break from the pandemic is no more. Borrowers will have to pay up, and we have some key tips on how. And an economist says we aren't headed for another government shutdown, even though Congress is preparing for another spending fight. Find out why here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Two more members of the Proud Boys were sentenced today over the Capitol breach. Ethan Nordine, one of the group's leaders, was sentenced to 18 years in prison, while Dominic Pizzola got a sentence of 10 years. Preliminary data shows that more families of illegal immigrants are coming to the U.S. than ever before. In August, the Border Patrol arrested 91,000 people who crossed the border as part of a family group. The latest jobs report shows the U.S. economy added 187,000 jobs in August, but unemployment was up, and overall it's the third weakest jobs report under President Biden. Still, the president said the U.S. is in one of the strongest job-creating periods in history. Interest on student loans is now due. The three-plus-year pause on loan payments is over. How can you prepare for another monthly bill? NTD's Faye Quarter brings us advice from the experts. Interest on student loans is back, and loan payments are about to resume. The typical borrower may have to start doling out $350 a month. So it's important to have a plan. Taking a look at money's coming into your household, money's going out. And what does that look like? Are you cash flow positive every month or cash flow negative? Wealth advisor Lawrence Sprung says it's good to be cash flow positive, meaning you still have cash left over after subtracting outflows from inflows. This cash can be used to make the payments. It's a problem if you're not cash flow positive. It's important to go back through those expenses and look at them, you know, through a fine tooth comb, a magnifying glass, and see what expenses could you potentially eliminate. Missing interest payments will hurt. It's important to pay the entire bill every month. Each day that you don't make a payment, interest does accrue. College financial advisor Jack Wang says any amount you don't pay will be added to the principal, and then the next interest payment will be calculated on the basis of that new amount. Some tips for borrowers. Number one is make sure you're reaching out to your servicers so they have the right contact information. 
Uh, because, you know, over the last three years, people could have moved. Obviously, they could have changed bank accounts. Number two is if the payment coming back is, uh, is going to be a strain on your budget, you should be working with your servicer to look at all the different types of repayment plans that are available. The first payments are due in October. Faye Quarter, NTD News. It's about to get busy on Capitol Hill as the Senate and House gear up for their return. Are we headed to another round of spending fights and a looming government shutdown? We speak with Vance Ginn, president of Ginn Economic Consulting. Vance Ginn, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's good to be back. Thank you. With the Senate and House resuming, it seems Congress is gearing up for another spending fight. Give us a sense of what this entails this time. Well, it, it really entails more spending. They want to increase spending more, and that's increased the deficit. We've seen more debt that's been added just since the debt deal. You know, that wasn't too long ago. More than a trillion dollars has been added already. They're expecting more than a $2 trillion added just in this fiscal year alone added to the national debt. And so it's, it's just one thing after another. And so in order for us to not have a government shutdown, which is the whole of the fear and hype that goes around that, this, this debt deal expires at the end of September. So now we're at September 1st. Everybody Everybody's worried about it, and so now they got to get something done. They'll probably kick the can down the road like they normally do because they want to spend more, but they really need to give down to business and say, you know what, what's going to be best for Americans? And it would be to restrain spending. And I want to get to the potential government shutdown, but first it seems this is involving something called a continuing resolution. So what are the two sides stuck on here? Well, that's right. We call it a CR. Uh, you know, I was at the White House for a while as chief economist for the Office of Management and Budget. And, you know, this is something that would come up then as well, um, where basically both sides, you'll have one on the Democrat side wanting more spending and maybe even more tax hikes or something like that. And then on the Republican side, you'll get a little bit less spending, but they'll want to increase spending as well. And I think what you'll see at the end of the day is they'll come up with a deal. It'll probably be more spending, things that maybe someone who's fiscal conservative like myself wouldn't like, but the government's not going to shut down. Uh, or anything like that. But I hope that what they can do, though, is start to rein in government spending, because that's what's contributing to the amount of inflation, less economic growth, and even the job, the labor market's starting to slow down. So they really need to start getting government out of the way. And Vance, the Freedom Caucus has already come out and said they're going to oppose any, quote, blank checks for Ukraine. So where do you see this going? Well, I think that's right. And I mean, I think they should oppose it. Um, it's one thing to say whether or not we should be in Ukraine or not, but it's another thing to think about how much we're spending and over $100 billion has been sent to Ukraine already, yet they don't want to audit those funds. That should be something that should be the top priority to audit the funds, whether it's Ukraine or really other places across government. I would be start auditing it everywhere from maybe independent even, not even from the government itself, because then it's just the, you know, the fox covering the hen house. And really what I'd like to see is where are these dollars going? Should we be spending money on these programs? Are we getting results that we really want? Because if not, we should be cutting them. When we should eliminate government spending in many places so that way we can get control over these deficits and debt. If not, we're going to have more inflation, more debt crises, and, more, and less economic growth in the process. And on that note, it seems consumers are still feeling the impacts of inflation when they go to the gas pump or the grocery store. How does what's happening in Congress impact that? 
Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you're seeing inflation. The headline numbers are about 3.3%. If you look at core excluding food and energy, which we all buy food and energy, by the way, uh, it's closer to 5%. This is still growing at a rapid rate where wages haven't really kept up over the last two years. And so you start to see this all around us. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. And so we've seen our mortgage rates go up, car loan rates and everything else. And as long as Congress continues to pass the types of budgets they are, with the excessive spending, running up deficits and debt, we're going to have higher interest rates and higher inflation. The Fed's going to print a lot of that money. And when you put more bonds out there, that means increases supply, reducing the price, raising interest rates across the economy. That means less opportunities for you to get that new car maybe you wanted or a new house. And so it locks people in and reduces the amount of supply of cars and houses and other things on the market, raising their prices. And that reduces the affordability for so many people. In particular, millennials and Gen Zers are getting crushed right now. And it's an unfortunate situation brought on to us by big government policies. Van Skin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. Coming up, the company buying up land surrounding an Air Force base in California has revealed plans for a mega utopian city, but some federal and state officials are still not convinced. And the Golden State is nearly drought free for the first time in three long years. We have details on this and more after the break. Welcome back. A website has just launched for a new megacity in California. After nearly five years under the radar, the company behind the massive land purchases is sharing its plans. Entity's David Lamb reports. These are rendered images of what a new megacity could look like in one California community. California Forever was created in 2017 by Flannery Associates CEO Jan Schrammick, who said he fell in love with the area. Officials say there's a lot at stake. If it's done correctly, I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities for the county. Their uh, uh, tax revenue base will increase quite a bit. But again, I think you're giving up a quality of lifestyle that you're, that's kind of unique to this area. You don't really have this uh, a whole lot of other places. California Forever is backed by a group of wealthy tech investors hoping to build the city east of Fairfield near Travis Air Force Base. And so finding out who it was, you know, although it's good to know who the man behind the curtain is, it doesn't change, you know, the stance of our need to protect our Air Force Base and to preserve our ag land. In 2018, Flannery Associates began purchasing 400 parcels and 55,000 acres of land in Solano County. But Congressman John Garamendi isn't too thrilled. Flannery Associates is using secrecy, bullying, and mobster tactics to force generational farm families to sell. They have forced farmers off the land, hiring big city lawyers to file federal lawsuits claiming restraint of trade against seven farm families who refused to sell their land and their heritage. According to California Forever, 81% of Solano parents that they recently surveyed said their kids won't be able to find a future of their own in the neighborhood when they grow up, hence the project. Saying is a chance for a new community, good paying local jobs, solar farms and open space. As for funding, they said, quote, 
approximately 97% of our capital comes from U.S. investors. The remaining 3% comes from Patrick and John Collison and other U.K. and Irish investors. Flannery Associates told ABC7 they don't plan to put any homes within a mile of the Air Force base. The company says they want to get approval and work with officials and residents for the project. NTD reached out to California Forever for comment. David Lamb, NTD News. Tropical storm Hillary may have brought flash floods, heavy rains and partial damage to several areas in California, but there is some good news about the storm. NTD's Christina Corona has more. The latest update from the official U.S. Drought Monitor indicates that California is almost completely free from drought. After a wet winter and a lot of snow, the dry conditions in the state have been getting better, but Tropical Storm Hillary brought even more rain. The data was released on August 29th and shows that about 93% of California doesn't have any drought issues. This percentage has been increasing since March, when researchers first noticed that more than half of the state was no longer in a drought. This was the first time this happened in three years. Around 6% of the state is a bit dry, but it's the mildest category on the U.S. Drought Monitor scale. About 1% of the area is in a moderate drought. No region in the Golden State is in the two worst drought categories, extreme or exceptional. In November 2022, nearly all of the Central Valley in California was in the worst category, exceptional drought. Today, the entire region is completely free from drought conditions. The last time California was almost entirely free from drought in late August was in 2019. Christina Corona, NTD News, California. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.